to another episode of Web3 Disruptors. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Debbie Hoffman. She's an executive leader, board member, and professor in financial services, legal, compliance, and technology innovation. She's a law professor focused on the areas of business law, entrepreneurship, and legal technology, including blockchain. She serves on three boards and founded Symmetry Blockchain Advisors, and she was also the Managing Associate General Counsel at Western Union. Welcome to the show, Debbie. We are really excited to have you. Thank you, Jeanette. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. I'd love to kind of dive right into it. So you've had a phenomenal career. It would be really helpful for our listeners to understand a little bit about your journey and what brought you into the world of blockchain. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeanette. So I started out as a full-time attorney doing real estate finance, representing lenders in large commercial loan transactions. I've also been an in-house counsel at a real estate lending type of company, more from the outsourced service provider perspective than actual direct lending. So seeing lending across the life cycle. And I have been a professor of law in, in a variety of capacities, real estate, corporate, as you discussed, business law, entrepreneurship, and started my and also started my own company in blockchain. So what really got me interested in blockchain is having had a career, as you can see, in lending, primarily in lending, being able to observe a supply chain within an industry and understanding how a technology like blockchain could be transformational. And I'm happy to get more into that, but that's basically the foundation of what I saw when I saw what this technology could do. Mm Mm-hmm. And so as you sort of looked under the hood and started to kind of go down that rabbit hole, what did you see as the potential promise for the technology and specifically as it related to those areas of business that you talked about? Yeah. So what's interesting about blockchain is it can transform a supply chain in any industry. So you name an industry and you and I can have a conversation about what could it do for that industry. And I think most people in blockchain understand that. So my initial entrance into what blockchain could do really was focused, like I said, on on lending. And because if you think about the lending industry, specifically in mortgage lending, when somebody starts to look for a house, they put in their information. Then they have to apply for a mortgage. They put in their information. They put in the house information. Then they apply for the loan and the mortgage, and they put in more of the same information, maybe a little bit more information. That loan itself eventually closes, having all this information from appraisal to title to the borrower information to the property history, well, that's title, but some other things. And then the loan itself stays with the a lender and then maybe gets sold. And the people that own the property maybe move on and buy other property. But all that information, we've already put it in once. And then when the people go to buy a new home or when the loan gets sold, it starts all over again. And so the loan goes into the... I'm going to take the loan aspect of it first. It goes into the secondary market. It gets sold. Maybe it gets traded. It gets... There's servicing involved of trying to collect the monthly payments from the the borrower. And then there's a bunch of things that have to happen. And so what I saw from the lending perspective is this entire supply chain is so disparate and there's not a lot of technology that helps it. And there's not a lot of... There's the same information that's used over and over again, but it gets lost. And so this technology of blockchain can piece together a supply chain that really needs help and needs growth and need having this technology helps both from an efficiency standpoint, from a pricing standpoint, from a making it easier for the homeowner standpoint. There's so many benefits to using a technology like blockchain in this kind of a supply chain. 
Yeah. And so I've had a number of conversations with people are specific to kind of lending and sort of real estate. And in kind of layman's terms, you just look at it and think, man, it is such an antiquated process as stands. So of course, it's ripe for disruption when you think about the different ways that blockchain can bring so much efficiency to the process. Right. I think you and I talked about there's been a lot of momentum around this at times and then less so. Where do you think we are in that curve in terms of true adoption of the technology as relates to lending and real estate in a way that is mainstream and is going to impact people like you and I in everyday life? So, Gina, I would love to answer that question and say, look, the next time you go apply for a loan, it's going to be your information is going to be put on a blockchain and you're not going to have to put in 10,000 pieces of information over and over again. But sadly, that's not quite the case yet. I started my company, Block Symmetry, in 2017 with this dream that in the next five years, this was going to happen. And so where are we today? We're past five years. It's moving at a much slower pace than we would have originally liked. But so the take on this is that this technology is here. It's not going away. It's not like people can say, oh, blockchain isn't ever going to take off. But that can't be true because what it does is it transforms the technology that we've had previously. So maybe it won't be in the form that we see it today, but there will be a type type of blockchain technology that is used in this industry at some point. We are beginning to see companies that use it. So there are, there are the kind of the, the ones that are really forward thinking and able to help and see where it can be used. And there's a lot of company, actually not a lot, but there's a few that are in those areas. What we don't have, Jeanette, is what I call like the market mover. We don't have the in lending. So for instance, there might be a JP Morgan using blockchain, but in mortgage lending, not so much. But what we really need to have this move forward is a market mover, a name company, or maybe a GSE. I've always talked about this, but likely it'll probably be more of a private independent bank that is able to say, this is what we're doing. And we've adopted this many partners and we're able to make this happen. So it's beginning to happen. Like there's the name is figure is the biggest name in, in mortgage lending or liquid mortgage and BAP are smaller. And there's people that do it with asset trading like them, but we don't have a, a rocket quick in a, one of the larger independent mortgage, bank, mortgage banks really saying we're doing this. And that's what it's going to take. It will have, it's just, we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great context. To what extent, does the kind of conversations that have been happen, happening around regulation impact this area, would you say? Yeah, that's a great question. So look, regulation always affects everything in lending. It's, that's been the, kind of the bane of my existence in my career as a lawyer in the mortgage lending industry. But that doesn't mean that this it will at all hinder the movement of being able to put information on a blockchain. And people always get very nervous, but there's GDPR or there's other kinds of the, all these, there's a lot of regulations with regard to lending. And you can always point in most industries, you can point to regulatory hindrances. It's the way the blockchain is built. So I, the way I analogize it is the easiest way I think for people to kind of understand this is look at a tree. The trunk of the tree is the main information that's publicly available. It doesn't have private information. And that's going to be on the blockchain. And then there's these branches. Some of those branches might have PPI, private information in them. And some of those branches might be on the blockchain. Maybe they might be closed blockchains. And some of them just might not be. Or they might have a, a, a what I'm going to say, a link for 
for all intents and purposes to another source that's private that you can't get behind that wall that has that information. But the trunk is the main base that will transfer the information. So dealing with regulatory hurdles, it absolutely can be done. There's creative ways and not just creative, but very legal ways in which to build these blockchains and to allow for this. It And so also when you're building new technology, you do need a lot of heads to, you, you might need the privacy attorney or the respite attorney or other attorneys to weigh in as to how you're building it. But that's the case in all technology that you're not going to ever have a situation where you can just do anything you want, even if you do it on paper and pass the paper to the next person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so switching gears a little bit to your kind of current endeavors around academia and how yeah. that's sort of intersecting with blockchain. We'd love to hear more about that. Thank you, Jeanette. I'm very excited to, I'm moving in addition to the work that I do, the board advisory work and that kind of thing. I'm actually moving in to be a law professor in the area of business law and hopefully helping to build some lawyers that are entrepreneurial lawyers as well, maybe perhaps building a entrepreneur law clinic. And so as I move into this opportunity, it's incredibly, I'm very excited about it because all the things we're talking about, you and I can talk about it and we can work for one company and try to make the difference with one company, which is what I've done in my career. But the opportunity to have multitudes of legal minds that can go out and be innovative, to be able to share my passion with them to be able to open up doors to things that they might not have seen before is just incredibly exciting to me. I've able to I've been able to do that in my career a little bit through executive education, through some part-time law teaching, through just even running internship programs, but going into a legal academic environment, being able to start a entrepreneur center and really get that the juices flowing of the next generation of legal minds just i'm just so excited to do that yeah that's exciting so what's the the plan going forward so when does this launch and really who's who are the people that are signing up for this program right like who's the who's the ideal sort of target demographic for you Yeah. So there's going to be two things going on. One is I'm going to be teaching business law to law students that are enrolled in the university. But the other aspect to it, and this is going to be at Cleveland State University College of Law. The other aspect is what we're hoping to do is roll out an entrepreneur law center in which we would have students that we could train to really approach, really approach law from an entrepreneurial perspective and learn how to be those entrepreneurial lawyers and then have the community, the whether it's Cleveland or whether it's a, gr- a greater area than that nationally, as we would ideally like to grow, we would identify yeah. entrepreneurs that need the help of lawyers to start, whether it's intellectual property or it might be contracts or it might be just even just corporate governance. And they don't even know where to begin. They might not know lawyers or they might not want to go to large law firms. And so really being able to match students and entrepreneurs together to have this opportunity. I know there's many, there's not many, there's a few other centers like this throughout the country. So like Northwestern and Boston, I think Boston University and MIT and Michigan, I know they all have some of these and there's other law schools that have them. But this is the wave of the future to be able to have these entrepreneur law centers, to be able to match students and business people together. It's really what we need in order to have the innovation in these industries. 
And what do you think it kind of will set your program apart from the things that are already those other programs that you referenced? Yeah, well, so you can, I can, the fact that I can even name the programs means it's not, there's a handful of them, means we need more. The amount of, think about the amount of entrepreneurs out there and the need. So historically, law schools have really focused their clinics and their centers on litigation clinics or certain other areas. Transactional law and entrepreneurship is really more of the newer areas that law schools are beginning to look at. So what's exciting is that this will be one of the earlier earlier centers developed. And again, still in the early stages of, the law, of hundreds of law schools, we can still count on, we can still, I can hand you a short number of lists of who has these centers. So being able to make a difference early on is really, in terms of law schools and centers, entrepreneurial centers, that's what's so exciting. That sounds incredible. Really excited to <laughs> to sort of follow your journey around that. Thank you. The other area that you and I had spoken about a little bit was you're a board member for, I think, a number of different organizations. Yeah. What advice would you kind of provide for others that are looking to kind of tread that same path? Oh, thanks, Jeanette. I appreciate the opportunity because I do think this is a really great area to talk about and particularly to talk about with women, because as you and I have even referenced this in the past, women are almost afraid to take something on if they say, well, I haven't had all of that experience. I don't check the boxes for everything, so I'm not going to go after it. And so when we think about board board roles, serving on boards, what are the boxes that have to be checked? And you have to have experience. You have to know how to advise people. You have to know your kind of protocols and be able to take a seat at the table and not be afraid to to really make a difference. And a lot of women have those characteristics, but they may not even realize they have those characteristics. So I really think the first thing is kind mm-hmm. of just getting your feet wet with some role, whether it's non-for-profit or whether it's advisory boards. I've been on a, a number of advisory boards and then kind of looking to what the next step is. And so for me, the next step is a real board role that is at a growing private company. It could be at a public company too, but really a company that more than just an advisory kind of role. And so in that, I call it the board journey of really finding that you need to, you need to network, you need to know how to grow your resume for that particular board purpose and not just the purpose of finding the job. You need to know, you you need to, I've identified a lot of webinars and groups and other people to talk to about it. So different viewpoints of how to find those roles. And Jeanette, the main, one of the biggest things is it's not like a job where it's going to be three months and you're going to have this fantastic new job. It's a board journey and finding the right board seat for you that's a good fit for your experience and your expertise. It takes time. So it might take a year or three years. And there just has to be patience there. But if, if you can identify your value and identify that you're networking and you're working your resume and you're you're training yourself with all the right, the, the right situation, for instance, if corporate governance or fine, whatever the background is that you have, mine would be particularly in corporate governance and technology and legal and some other areas, then you are all doing everything you can. And it eventually, you should hopefully make the right networks to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I think it, that was really great practical advice as well for people in terms of sort of starting out and maybe understanding that it's definitely a journey to navigate and to put yourself in that position and that there's things that you can be doing along the way. 
I did. I read something that was quite interesting around when females or minorities are on boards that quite often there's quite a narrow population that is like they'll be sitting on five, six different boards, right? Because they keep getting tapped for the same opportunities because companies are looking and thinking that it's quite a small pool. And and that actually the problem is that enough organizations don't take that view that you just described of here's all the expertise that this person brings to the table. And just because they haven't previously sat on a board doesn't mean that we shouldn't then take a chance on somebody who is a first time board member, because this is what their credentials look like. So instead, it just we kind of end up recycling almost the same expertise uh, across lots and lots of different boards. What advice would you give to companies that are building their boards and and really, ideally, hopefully cultivating quite diverse perspectives? Yeah, that's a great question because Jeanette, sadly, I have experienced that very much so. I've had I've not never sat on a public board, although I've run corporate governance for a worldwide company overseeing hundreds of boards. So I'm, I, you know. But yet I still have had pretty much recruiters say to me, oh, but you haven't sat on a public board and like poo poo. And so you have to have thick skin and say, they don't know me. They don't know what I can bring to the table. So let's just start with that. Like it's that you have to have strength in yourself to start this board journey and know that what your skills are and what you bring to the table and you might get rejected and you have to be able to accept that. So that's, but move on from that. Okay. And so Jeanette, we had also talked about, so recycling board members and how do we get out of the routine of having the same people go to companies? So what's so interesting about that is as I've been on the board journey, I have talked to a number of a lot of, I've been done a lot of networking. And what you find is that it's the same, the same people on the boards because their networks are limited to those people. So We all have networks. And what we need to figure out is how to overlap those networks. So from the perspective is I have a somebody I know who is very well networked. I'm going to say in the Boston area, particularly with more men than women. And I have, he has been able to share some of his networks with me. And luckily, I've been able to break into people that I haven't known and things that I haven't known about. And so the point is that we can't stay within the same networks that we've been in or people that we know. We really, the only way to make changes is to kind of break through the status quo of what's already, who's already on these boards and the people that are already on these boards. Now, is that easy? Not at all. Not at all. And so the only way to make that happen is that we just have to kind of push our way into these other areas, other people, areas, things you haven't, places you haven't been to, conferences you haven't been to, people you haven't spoken to. Somebody you might pick up the phone and be like, I haven't spoken to this person or I met this person once or twice. Picking it up. Because if you don't push yourself to talk to and network with the people outside your comfort zones or the people that you do daily, number one, you're not going to, you're not, they're going to, we're going to continue to have this recycled network. The other thing I will tell you is I actually have been slightly surprised by the people within my own networks that do offer to introduce me to outside of these, the closed limited groups that I've been in and say, Hey, I sit on this board and let me recommend you. And so 
I've had people do that. I'm not telling you it's always that easy, but you have to make sure that you verbalize to your own group, your own networks that you're looking for this new board position. Yeah. So it's interesting as you were walking through that, Debbie, I started to think about how important sponsorship of others and even mentorship starts to to become in, in terms of just being really, really well positioned. You are a great example of this, by the way, in terms of sort of sponsoring and kind of helping other people. I think in the short time that we've been connected, you've introduced me to so many kind of great people and offered some really great resources. And so I think that it's a really prime example of women supporting other women. But, you know, looking at kind of the broader context of sponsorship and and mentorship, how important has that been for you within your career? So I think I've been lucky in the sense that it has, I've had a tremendous amount of it and I've developed kind of almost like a natural ability to figure out who might be good matches for people. And I just love doing that. I did not know that was one of my strong points when I was 25, 30 years old. I didn't know that until I just, in my thirties, I think I just started doing it naturally. And I was like, oh, I just, I play the game of memory in my head and I think about who might be good. And when I meet people at cocktail parties, I'm like, oh, they could be. And so I think it does become somewhat of a a natural talent after a number of years. And not everybody likes that. And not everybody. So I can't say that it's for everybody, but I definitely get joy out of that. And I, so, but what I would recommend really uh, more than anything else is, is encouraging the encouraging, whether it's your peers, I mean, it often, I often do this with my peers, or whether it's somebody in there that are a, a decade or two junior to you in their career journey, is to really encourage them to think about everybody they meet as a potential network in their future. Don't ever, don't burn bridges. Like it's just, don't burn bridges. I don't know how else to say it. Treat everybody, even if you're upset with somebody, just leave it at that and just go your next chapter because you never know when people come around. And two is encourage the, I almost like say the shyer, the quieter, the people that don't see their values much, encourage them to kind of get outside of themselves because that's, those are the biggest challenges. The people that are really introverted and don't know how to spread their wings. And if you can say, Hey, sometimes I'll just, I'll see something. I'll be like, Oh my gosh, this is perfect for you. Go apply for this. And I do that a lot. But what's more exciting is this just happened to me the other day. Somebody wrote to me and said, Hey, Debbie, I know about this program. I know you had talked about it. I just applied for it. And I was like, yes, because what that means is I don't need to advocate for them anymore. They know how to advocate for themselves. And that's the goal of being able to say, go do it, go do it, go do it, is when they finally realize like, I don't need Debbie to say, go do it. I can do this by myself. So I think that's like a huge thing. And then sponsorship, mentorship, all of that. I have been so lucky to have those over my career. And hopefully I'll continue to have those. I'm very excited about next steps because the people that I have seen so far in my next role, they seem to be very good people. And so when you surround yourself with good people, you find people that support you, you find those sponsorships and mentorships naturally. And when you work hard and you deserve it. So if you think, if I think back on my career, the people that became my mentors were because I did a good job for them and they saw that. And so if and you're apologetic or you're you understand when you're not when you're not able to meet goals and you're not just apologetic, but you are able to verbalize why you can't do something if you can't do it and other approaches. So I think you earn those sponsorship and mentorships. And again, luckily I feel very fortunate that I've had those in my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, so listening to really kind of taking the context of a lot of the things that we've talked about, you've had such a sort of successful career and you are so widely respected within your field. What would you say kind of looking back has been one of the more transformative moments for you within your career? Because it's oftentimes not always when it's plain sailing that we sort of learn the most or kind of grow the most. So Jeanette, I'm going to answer that with, I really appreciate your kind words because while I have had a, a, I'm very happy with my career, I'm actually starting a little bit from the beginning, if you think about it. So I, you don't know that much about my history. The listeners probably don't, but becoming a time doctrinal law professor for me is totally new chapter. I mean, I've been a professor in a different bunch of different areas, but this particular role is new. And so I'm really excited about it. But you, the lesson I'm going to talk about here is just that it's almost like no matter how many times you can become an expert in what you're doing, you can always find new roles and new ways to take on challenges and kind of reinvent your expertise to a way that you are climbing the ladder again. And that's what I'm doing. Like I cho- I am choosing to go into academia from a full pretty long corporate career because I'm super excited about what that means to me and the difference I can make in the world. So, just kind of I want to make sure that people see that only because I think everybody should to the extent you can do it from a monetary perspective, should think about those changes in their lifetimes and not just like Oh, when I'm 30, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. So transformation moments, I do think this is one right now in my career, <laughs> but there have been yeah. many. And I think most of them are just things that times when you really think like, do I want to do this? And do I want to continue to do this? And can I afford to do something else? Or can I take that leap to a new role that allows me to be happier? And I think those are the transformation moments that you have in life where you if you're unhappy, you have to think about what change can you make to make your life happier? Because this is life. And you don't want to be like, maybe you can be in a job that you're really unhappy with for a year or two years or a few years, but there've got to be changes that you make in life to get yourself to a better place. And how can you, from a strategy perspective, think about doing that? And I would really encourage people like, I've had a lot of people also talk to me about their careers and their changes. And I take some bravery, there's no doubt. But in the end, usually you're in a happier place. Mm-hmm. Completely. I did the, the same journey from being in a, a corporate role for 15 years to then diving into entrepreneurship. And it's, it really resonates a lot what you kind of said there. I think, number one, people underestimate the level of courage that it actually does does take, I think, to make those sorts of moves and to be a rookie again at something after after such a long time. But we had last week on the show, Emily Delara, and she's a former CMO within Web3. And she's now a mindset and leadership coach within Web3. And one of the topics that she talks about a lot is burnout. And we talked about the intentionality that you have to have around checking in with yourself around where you are within your career journey because you it usually goes in a bit of a cycle where you're doing the same thing for a long period of time and you get discontentment because you've kind of you've not 
maybe had that intentional moment of maybe I should be doing something different now, right? Like what excited me five years ago isn't what currently excites me. And it's almost like a bit of a thin line of that then turning into burnout, right? And and kind of you sort of end up taking action when it's quite late in the game. Yeah. So do you have a question on burnout or? Go on. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, so the way, how I think about it is, I mean, it's your career. It's so there's longevity of your career and there's daily and weekly actions. And so for me, for everybody has different ways that they can deal with stress. And so there's always family stresses, of course, with parents or children or whatever it is. And so I really still am a true believer that you have to find time for yourself and you have to carve that out. And so whatever that means to you, whether it means just resting or reading a book or going for some kind of fitness, whatever that makes you, whatever it is. But if you can calendar that, I'm a true, I'm a calendar, but if you can calendar in that time every week and say on Wednesdays from five to six, I'm going to carve this time out. I think for me, that has worked in terms of calendar, looking at my schedule and saying, where can I find the time for me? Because I find if you don't carve that out, it just doesn't happen. And so, yeah, sometimes Mm -hmm. you have to move, but if you, right. Yeah. You got to find, you got to find the time. So it might be smaller when you're, when you have more demands and it might be greater as you have, as they loosen up, but if so it might be a wave, but you have to be able to find that time for yourself or you're just, you're not going to be of use to anybody. <laughs> you're completely right. And it's, it feels very natural for us to schedule our work life or to schedule time simply to recharge, I think is often quite an alien concept, but it is, it's exactly what needs to happen. Because as you said, if you don't do that, then it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And there's, there's an element of just making yourself a priority, I think, in what you just said, which is great advice. So I can't believe that we are coming up on time. We've covered so mm-hmm. much ground. So the la- final couple of questions then, Debbie, what sort of Focusing back on Web3, what's your predictions for the space over the next year or so? What do you think people can expect to see? Yeah, well, so it's an incredibly interesting time for, from two perspectives, from one, from the cryptocurrency perspective and the regulatory environment in the US. And so recently, the, the SEC versus Ripple ruling came out, which was an exciting ruling for the cryptocurrency industry just to say, hey, we're not all going to be ruled by one everything is not securities. And this is very exciting from a cryptocurrency perspective in this area. So let's keep an eye on the regular, like I'm excited because there's potential for interesting regulation in this area. And there still is. And that gave us like a little glimmer of hope that there is. So there's that. And two is just continued growth in the blockchain technology space and just what's out there. And if I look at headlines and read what's going on every day in this area. And you still, I still can't keep up. There's so many changes all the time. And if you pop out of it for three months and then pop back in, all these new things have happened. So it's, it's exciting. Some of these things might disappear. And so it's okay if you pop out for three months and then get back in and look at what's going on. But it's just such a fascinating space to continue to look at, to see how it grows and how it innovates and what might change. And so... The next year, it's going to continue to grow, but it's it's exciting. It's an exciting time. Yeah, 
Awesome. And for people that have really kind of enjoyed the teaser that you've given us today, if they want to sort of follow along with your journey or learn more about the Entrepreneur Clinic, where can they find you? Where can they find sort of information? Sure. Thank you, Jeanette. So I'm. you can always connect with me on LinkedIn, Debbie Hoffman on LinkedIn, but I still have a website up. I don't keep it up and running every day. So, But it does have blockchain resources and some things in ways you can always connect with me on there. So you can always look at that website. It's symmetryadvisors.net, S-Y-M-E-T-R-Y-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.net. And again, there's blockchain information on there. And just if you put in a, I think it's an inquiry in there, I will get the email and I'll be happy to respond to you. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Well, we'll add all of that into the show notes as well to make it really easy for people to find you. Debbie, thank you so much for coming on our show and for being so generous with your insights and advice. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for our listeners, we will see you next week for another episode of Web3 Disruptors. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you, Jeanette. I am a follower of this show now. I'm really excited to to introduce it to my students as well. So thank you so much. 